Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. All right, guys, it's Brent Birch back again for another episode of the Standard Sportsman Podcast. I'm alongside my co-host, Kaysen Short, and We've got a really cool guest today. Um, a lot of people will know his name and have heard his voice before because he's he's somewhat iconic in the, the waterfowling world. But but he's a little bit more than that to both of us. We we consider him a, a really good friend, someone we talk to consistently throughout the season. He's one of the the handful of people, you know, on my short list that will will talk waterfowl hunting, uh, whether it's May, August. November, December doesn't matter. He'll he'll uh, he'll talk it. So, uh, really excited to get to visit with him and actually get you know some of the stuff we talk about. Actually, get it on. It's not on tape, but but you know what I mean. We're recording it. So, uh, Casey, you want to introduce our uh, introduce our guest today? Yeah, yeah. Like you said, he's a, a good friend of ours. Uh, he's an expensive friend to have, uh, and I'll say that because the more I'm around him and the more I look at his photography and the stuff he uses, I I want to be like him so i go out and buy the gear and uh it's not cheap but uh man uh, an icon like you said uh i asked him before we started here how many covers that he had had just on du and he, he didn't know um so if you've paid any attention to du wildfowl cubby rise anywhere you've seen his work uh, uh lee chose welcome to the show well thanks for having me on it's been a while since i've got to talk about any of this so this will be i'm looking forward to this it's fun and by the way going back to i'm the expensive part <laughs> right i mean i'm sure you're referring to that 300 to eight, right oh yeah okay look at it this way if it's cheap and it doesn't work it's expensive if it's expensive and it works it's cheap Oh, to to be clear, I'm thankful you turned me on to it because it is well, hands down like my favorite lens. Uh, oh, yeah, it's the best yeah, lens I mean, ever. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> so I've taken a lot of sports pictures here lately. I'm, I'm yeah. posting on personal page, and I get questions oh, yeah. all the time like, "Why do your Why do your pictures look so much better than mine?" Like, well, glass, right? Um, yeah. So, best advice you ever gave me. Oh, cool. Good. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. 
Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, Light Boots are guaranteed game-changers. Now available in youth sizes. How are you guys? What's up? Man, we're getting ready for, uh, it's about to be the teal opener here, uh, the Blue Wings, and uh, have have arrived apparently in some pockets that are pretty pretty decent numbers. I've got a buddy that called me this morning asking me what I was doing this weekend because he, he bought an old uh, fish farm uh, kind of in the Lono, Carlisle area, for those that know the geography of Arkansas, but um, it's about 30 miles east of of uh, Little Rock, um, but he uh, is converted all in. He's converted all those old minipons into to rice fields, and he he farms it ex- exclusively for waterfowl. Um, but he he's had some water out, uh, obviously with that rice, and and he's collected a pretty decent number of teal. So I'm I may uh, I may give them a run for their money uh, this weekend. Gosh, they're fun to hunt, and holy cow, are they good to eat? Uh, I think they're my favorite bird to eat. I do. Yeah, t- teal are teal are definitely way up there for sure. As yeah. far as table fare. Yeah. Well, Kaysen made blue wings for me. Oh boy, I bet it was maybe two or three years ago, a couple years ago. Yeah. And I mean, he just I think he just grilled the breast with like maybe Montreal steak seasoning. Just grilled. My God, they were as good as anything I'd ever ate. Yeah. We just seared them on the blackstone like we do yeah. uh, white fronts, and they are Man, they're good table fare uh, and fun to shoot. It may be my favorite blue wing, green wing, maybe my favorite bird to shoot. It's just a, it's a good sport. Yep. They're great. I got to hunt them last, uh, well, not a few days ago, like maybe 10 days ago or so when it opened in Minnesota. I think it was like September 3rd or something. Oh, and I went out to Western Minnesota on the border of South Dakota where I cut my teeth as a young fella duck hunting with dad and uncles and brothers. And and uh, I brought my little cocker out there for his first duck hunt. And it was fun, but boy, oh boy, it's the habitat and the water is nowhere near like I remember it um, even like 20 years ago. Not even, not even close. Almost like disturbing. Um, oh, I bet. Like, yeah, well, marshes, there used to be a lot of hemi marshes out there, you know, that were half half slough grass or half cattails and half open water, and they were just full of teal. Well, now you go out there, and those waters are just open, open basins with maybe some cattails around the edge, in many cases, no cattails, and then, like, algae and water clarity really bad. Just not, not, not like it used to be. No, is that draining? Is that dis- Yeah, is that disappearance it, of those cattails? Is that related to to farming practices or? Yeah, yeah, draining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They drain, and then you know you keep taking little wetlands away, and then it rains, and you know you one pond turns into a watershed that used to be for ten, and you know you got a problem. Yeah, but you know. since you're up there, and, and obviously that part of the world, we get down here, we get the reports, and and some of us check the drought 
you know, the drought monitor and can see that, you know, Canada was really dry, but, you know, given you were right there on the, on the border, Minnesota, South Dakota, you know, we got, got plenty of positive news, I guess, that, that North Dakota uh, Mm -hmm. had, had some, had some adequate habitat. Um, but what are you seeing? Because I, I remember last year I went to South Dakota pheasant hunt, and it was remarkable of how many of those little pockets that you could tell were a little wetland were were bone dry enough you could walk across them and not worry about sinking into up to your knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. They had just baked all summer, so you know this is a year later. Is is it is it better? Uh, worse? Kind of mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, I mean they just South Dakota just had some water here. A little while ago and i'd say it's better than it was north dakota's like really good north dakota looks north dakota looks really good there's still parts of prairie canada that are not good not good for sure but yeah alberta alberta's had had a long run of yeah being pretty poor uh, yeah habitat wise western saskatchewan same way yep mm-hmm. yep for sure. We need rain. It'll come. That's one thing that'll happen. We just need to make sure we have the habitat when the rain comes, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. It'll rain. Well, Lee, we, we talk a lot about Canada with you. You've got a long history up there hunting. Talk a little bit about the changes you've seen in Canada. I know you mentioned before we started, you, you made over 100 trips up there mm-hmm. hunting. So talk a little bit about yep. what you've seen in that time span. Well, I mean, I can go back to the first year my dad took me to Saskatchewan was 1974. I was 14. Oh, I'm 63 now. And what I remember about the mid-70s in Canada was way more ducks, way fewer geese, and no pressure. There was no pressure. And like I don't know how others hunted in the mid-70s out there, but we didn't hunt ducks. No ducks were ever killed in a dry field with my dad, ever. We would maybe hunt speckle bellies because he liked, mom and dad liked to eat specks. So we'd hunt them in the morning in a dry field, you know, just laying flat and stubble with a handful of g and h henriette and shells back in the day there and then in the afternoons i mean we'd go to a water hole and we'd hunt ducks and we'd shoot our ducks in the in the field and or in the water i mean it was never any field hunting i don't even remember field hunting i don't remember any dry field hunting for ducks and then so i guess i'd say that the biggest the by far the biggest change that happened in the prairie was layout blinds and spinners I mean, it just changed the game up there. It did. Oh yeah, yeah, I had to. Uh, you know, and I've done, I, I did it. I think we talked about it. I, I went to Saskatchewan in 2011, and I went more for the personal perspective of I had an opportunity to go see where ducks come from. Mm-hmm. Um, not that uh, you know that that it had to be this you know blood gore and kill. Uh, everything you can kind of trip. I, I kind of had a different perspective on it than probably maybe most people have. I'm not sure. Um, 
but uh, you know, that was really before social media and everything had had taken. Obviously, not nowhere near the level it is now. But but it was amazing up there. I mean, you were in the middle of rolling, and this was this was near North Battleford. Um, yep. Saskatchewan, good, great area. You know, you wouldn't hear, you obviously wouldn't hear another person shoot. I mean, it was miles and miles in between and fields for as far as you could see. But you'd, fl- you'd flick the battery, you know, you'd put a battery in those things and flick that uh, switch on, and it, it, they'd be the smallest little speck in the sky. And, and then in, in a matter of seconds, they were all hovering around those, uh, yep. those spinning wing decoys. Duck calls are not. We're not needed then, not needed now. Uh, it's it is totally that spinner that that has changed that dynamic of being able to go out in the middle of a field where mm-hmm. there's plentiful food. Their 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 practices are a lot different than ours here. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as waste grain and stuff left behind. Plus, it doesn't yep. get wet, so it doesn't rot and, and and like a rice field does here. But uh, plentiful food, and now they found a way to attract the ducks to the decoy spread and. And uh, it's a, uh, it's it's shooting, killing. It's not. I don't know that it's hunting. Yeah, it's um, it. You asked what what the biggest difference is up there. It's that, and then it's outfitter pressure. Um, not 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 that that's you know, and I. It's a tough. That's a tough subject to go down because I have lots of really good buddies that are. Are outfitters, but if you're a DIY guy, and like I DIY Canada and still do, I still do, and it's a lot harder competing with you know commercial outfits and rogue ones as well. Not even the licensed ones. Rogue outfitters are major problem. Um, but the tying up of land like multiple pieces, you know, not necessarily just an area or just a field for their hunt the next day. But I mean, there's lots of ground that's just tied up. It's just way different than, than it used to be. You were, you were pretty much a free man back in the day, rolling around Prairie Canada. And, you know, when I was younger, especially in the years where I was starting my like photography business you know i i went all over those provinces with a camera and a dog and just me and many trips i was solo and it it was uh it was nothing and nothing like it ever i mean it was the people ask me like where's your favorite place to go i mean oh it was it was prairie canada it was saskatchewan there's no just getting to photograph the birds and seeing the number of birds. That's another thing. Like, so another big change would for me is like, and you, you remember some of those photographs I've, I've taken that were, they've been in Delta and Ducks Unlimited. And, um, that was common back then. I mean, that wasn't hard to find those giant, massive late season flocks and, photograph. I mean, they're quite honestly, it was easy to find them. You could just go to the same spots every year and you'd find them. And it's just not like that anymore. I don't, I don't see them like that. So it's another thing that I think is a a big difference. Like when I read, when I read reports and I read about duck numbers and bird numbers, I ask people all the time, well, where are they? 
show them to me. Where well, I don't see them. I mean, you guys know I travel. Yeah. You know, I I travel. You know, and then I know everybody says, well, they're out west. Well, they're not they they're not all out west. They're not all supposed to be out there. So where are they? You know, I don't know. Do you, what do you guys think? You guys do. You guys are you guys are in a whole different part of the world than I'm in. And I come down and see you guys, and it's an absolute blast. Hunt the style of hunting down there is just you know next level, and the way greenheads respond to a call and down there. But I mean, is it like it was? Is it like it was in the seventies, nineties? Is is it like it was in the late nineties? Well, no, no. But that you got to remember that I mean the late '90s, you know we we've talked about this on some previous episodes. Uh, the last season of the '90s and the first season of the 2000s, Arkansas killed over a million mallards. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was perfect storm, truly perfect storm. Great production, great production on the prairies, and uh, we had the uh, advent of the the spinning wing decoy. Yeah, and that, that comes back a little bit to that habitat side of things. You know, everything lined up perfectly in the pothole region, and we had a great production. So those years were sky high, you know, but doesn't doesn't mean that it's all habitat. I, I know we'll get into that, but. Yeah, right, right. I, I, I'll go on record as saying I think 99 was the, I think 99 was the best other other than the seventies, I think ninety nine is the best year for greenheads I ever ever saw. Uh, yeah, that that would that would match up. Mm-hmm. That was and that was all over. That wasn't just in one area. That was wherever I went. It ninety nine was the year of the greenhead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just think about that. We, I mean, Arkansas shot a million mallards. A million. Right. The right. closest we've come since uh, was, I think, in you know seven fifty somewhere in there. Um, you know, it's just, it's remarkable. And we did it back to back and, you know, that in the, it started to taper a little bit after that, it follows the cyclical ways that it does. But, um, but yeah, and a lot of people, that's when they, that's also, there's a significant number of duck hunters. That's when they got into the, the, to the sport, um, you know, whether the success rate, the, the ability, you could be a a marginal or lesser caller. And you could yeah. you could flip the switch on that deal. So uh, comparing everything back to that is that's a I don't know if we'll ever see that again. Yeah, I don't. I think there's lots of things we might not ever see again. It doesn't mean that it's not good and fun and you know the best sport ever. You know it doesn't mean that, but I think there's lots of things we're not going to see again. Let me ask you this one. You know we I hear. Whenever I hear something's not going well, I I pretty much always relate it to pressure, right? I do. You know, like people, mm-hmm. some hunters mm-hmm. use the all the ducks are stale. Well, they're not stale; they're pressured. Let's mm-hmm. call, let's call it what it is. Okay. What was the last year we had it? We had two million duck hunters, two million migratory bird stamps sold. What year was it? Do you do you guys remember? I don't. It, it's all I know is we're half that now. We're half that, and it's not that yeah. long ago that we. Had, I think it was seventy. There was. Let me. Let me. Let me look here quick. This is yeah, Minnesota. Minnesota is one of the. You know, your home base is one of the. 
the uh, you know poster child for dropping license sales. Oh, uh, yeah. just we just, just hunters falling left and right. Yeah, we just don't have. We just oh, I can't find it real quick here. The guy just plugged in two million duck hunters, hoping it would come up, and I see that million duck campaign for Delta that all those greenheads on the prairie with that red combine. Yeah, that's yours. That, so I shot that in I shot that in 06, 06 in Melford, Saskatchewan. And people would go, well, I can't believe you're even telling people where that was. Yeah, well, there's no duck share anymore. <laughs> you can go there. Yeah. They ain't there. Yeah. They're not there. They were there. Yeah, I'm sure year. I'm sure that wetland's not near that that size anymore either. No. No, it just it's like radically, radically different. But anyway. There was two million waterfallers, but yet it seems like there's way more pressure today on them than there was then. And I, I, and I, and I, and I agree with that. I think there's way more pressure on them. Where the equipment we have, I mean, look what mud motors have done in the woods down where you guys live. For sure. You used to have areas that you couldn't get to the greenheads in the trees. Mm-hmm. They could rest. Oh, they don't get to rest anymore, right? Or no, not right. Yeah, no, you're you're right. And I, mean, I think it's a multitude of things. We we can access every place we want to go now. Even right. you know more soil units, you can get there with with cyber right. size with tracks on them. You know, um, I mean, it's not just that. I mean, look at how many. Well, how many states do you think an average duck hunter hunts in now versus nineteen oh. seventy? That great point, and then not only the amount of states, the days in the field, and then I'm going to bring up the gifting of birds part. Back yeah. when I was young, when like I said, when we were in Canada and we got to our our bird limit, let's say it was, maybe it was 16, even in the seventies. I can't remember. They were, they issued tags. I remember that. And you put tags on their feet. And when you were done, you went home. You didn't give them away. You didn't gift them. You went home. That was food yeah. back then. You know, that's just, that's another thing that's way different. But the pressure that's put on birds, look at, Right now, like what you will see in in on social media feeds, like the dry field hunting and the, the you know the young mallards and the young pintails and widgeon, they get hit every day. Every day, they're not left. A.M. M.P.M. or just a. Uh, when I went, we we hunted geese in the morning and ducks in the afternoon. I, I guess I I guess I would say both. I, I, I guess, guess they're on the outfitter. They're yeah. just not left. They're just not, they don't get to rest, you know? And I know, I know you hear that age, age class distribution hasn't changed on the, especially on the Southern end of the flyway that it's, it's not having any impact really on the, mm-hmm. the age of birds that we're killing, but I don't, I don't see how that's possible. You You look at all the Brown ducks and every photo that you see, and there, you can't convince me that, that some of those year of young wouldn't make it to the southern states. I mean, it, it's no wonder that everyone on the south end of the flyway is complaining about pressure and educated ducks. I mean, the young birds have been killed already. They, they died in a barley field over a spinner. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, I guess I don't, and I don't know that. I don't know the, I don't know the age class of birds. I just know that they're brown. Yeah. There's a lot of brown ones, you know, and then I, here's another, this is, this one, maybe you guys have heard me talk about this and maybe in person, I certainly have never done it on a podcast, but um, I, I got to think about how to say this one. I don't want to, I don't want to start a firestorm or a grease fire. Um, oh, but yeah, maybe I do. Yeah, maybe we should start a grease fire. Um, another big difference that it, we're in, this ties into the the pressure. Now, I heard some of the the, the well respected game managers from some of the conservation organizations say that hunting pressure let's take prairie candle let's take saskatchewan because that's where i've been so many times and i can relate to it there's this narrative going around that there's way less hunting pressure in saskatchewan now than there was in the 70s i don't believe that i don't even even remotely close to believe that so now if you said there's less license sales in Saskatchewan for waterfalling than there was in the 70s, that would be something that you could prove out, and that might be accurate. But pressure? No. Pressure is a different word. Pressure is not license sales. Pressure is the amount of stress that you put on waterfall, and that is a factor of 10, 10 times greater than it ever used to be. So. Then you'd go, well, bird harvest numbers are down. I'm not buying that either. No way. And here's why. And anybody listening to this can pass this along to other people, and you can do your own fact-checking. When you come across the border, you have to fill out a bird declaration form if you have birds. So back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when Dad was still alive, and, you know, like I said, we'd go up there and you got to your bird, you got your to your limit or whatever, and we're, we're coming home. We're going home. And you get to the border and you fill out your bird declaration form. Maybe you have 24 mallards and a handful of geese that you're going to eat and some sharp tail Hungarian partridge or whatever, and you're coming home. Okay. Now you have where people are up there for extended periods of time. And what are they doing with the birds? Well, they gift them. Well, how do you, so then you come across the border and you're supposed to fill out a bird declaration form and they say, they get to the, they get to the border and the border agent asks, you guys got any birds? Nope. Well, what'd you do with them? Well, we left them up there. We ate them up there. We gifted them or whatever the answer would be. The point is they don't fill anything out. So I'm going to ask you, because I don't know this, but I'm going to ask the question to people, listeners, where are they? How many is that? I mean, there's outfitters up there and that are up there the whole season that kill thousands, right? Sure. Where are they? I, I think that's a legitimate question. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. 
I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now, now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's an amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that Clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids' ammo, gauge reducers, hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah, the Yeti Go box is, is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must-have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas, and leather bags, and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com, in their Birmingham, Alabama, and Wilson, Arkansas stores, and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Well, let me ask you this. You know, if, if you're having to complete, and, and, I, and I had to do all this when I went, and I remember doing that form, uh, but it's obviously been been a few years. But yeah, is that declaration form factoring into the, the numbers that Canada is, is writing on is what is what the harvest number is is that where that data is coming from well as far as non-residents coming across the border i would say it has to because that's that's the point of it you know and then they send out a survey later on that you get and i think we get it in the winter or early spring like maybe march and they send out another survey now, I don't know how they collect data from residents, but I I just can't, well, I just, I, it's not like I can't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it that that, that number is accurate on the birds and what kind of birds are harvested on in what's wrote down on that bird declaration form. And to take that even a step further, I, and I think I, I think I was talking to you guys about this earlier, right? If we're supposed to follow the science, game managers follow the science, and I get that, I get following that, right? But Fauci also followed the science, right? So you got to ask yourself, what's what numbers are you looking at? Because if you're looking at bird declaration forms, they're not they're not they're not filled out accurately. They're not. Well, I think I think even here we're skeptical of HIP being yeah. completed correctly. But you know they they say that there's there's ways in the formula that are way more advanced than than we can comprehend to sift all that out and level it out and everything else. But I don't know. It it does make you wonder. No doubt. Not not claim. I'm not crying conspiracy theory, but it just it's hard to understand how they 
they get that number and then everybody knows it's got to be an approximation. We'll never know, you know, how many, no. exactly how many ducks were shot and things like that. But right. Uh, right. But don't you, th I think, I think we're all worried about waterfall. I think we're all worried about it. Yeah, it should it's, be. We are worried about it. It's just, what do we do about it? Be we here's here's what really scares me. This and this does scare me. It's we don't as a community we don't seem to have the ability to police ourselves. Well, mm -hmm. you know what's going to happen. The feds are going to do it, and once they start, it's not going to be management. It's going to be regulating the days that we can go in the field. But you're already starting to see it. Manitoba change regulations. I've heard rumors that Saskatchewan and Alberta are going to follow suit. I don't know that, but I've heard rumors of that. Then you hear things in Kansas that are changing. And then I know you guys down in Arkansas have had some things change on public ground, correct? Correct. correct. South Dakota. Okay. South Dakota is looking at it. So, South Dakota, the same thing. They're looking at it right now, right? And again, again, they're going to regulate when we can go hunting or days. And that, to me, seems like the wrong thing to do. Why would you want to stop people or families from going into the field? It does, it does the opposite. Now, but I've talked to a number of biologists, waterfall biologists on this subject, and they tell me because the one thing that they know works is taking days away, not limits, yeah. not cutting the limit, days. Right. So I, I want to back up and, and give everyone a reference point. We're talking about harvest data and, and information. Right now, they factor that Canada makes up for 10% of the continental harvest. So, you know, one out of 10 birds is killed in Canada over the, the entire continent. And I don't know that you can look at social media. I, I know social media is a highlight reel and it's not real life either, but I don't think you can look at social media and safely assume that 10% is accurate. So back to our conversation we had before we started here, you know, to quote a friend of ours, garbage in, garbage out. I think some of these harvest numbers maybe aren't as accurate as we think. And we're putting a lot of faith in them. Um, right. And that kind of leads ourselves to, to this conversation now about regulation, you know, from, from the government. And we're talking about, re, you know, regulating hunters and when we can go. I know a lot of people in our state that are, they really like what we call the Usur ban. Um, a lot of people think that's a really good move, but I, I for one, don't. Um, it really concerns me when we start to limit access like that uh, on a particular group of people, you know, just because you don't live in the state. And I understand the, the tax base and all these things, but it's just a really slippery slope, especially when, you know, it's someone else making those rules for us. We don't have the self-restraint to pull ourselves back. So someone else has to do it. Right. Yeah. It's you, 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 you mentioned social media as being a highlight reel. I mean, I think it's more detrimental than, well, it can be. I should say it can be. It can be mm -hmm. a lot more detrimental than that. I mean, these narratives that are out there, like make them pay rent and rainouts and eight, ten, twelve mans by eight forty-five, or piles make smiles, or the grind, or 
Uh, all that stuff. All that does is put more madness and pressure on the whole game. What? Why are you going? Ask yourself why you're going. That's why? Really? Yeah. Yeah, wow. to wring every drop of blood out of the resource. It's wow. not about a continuation of the sport or passing down the culture of our sport or, or oh. even educating the next generation on how to do it right. Oh. Right. It's a pissing match. Right. And that's the one thing our waterfalling sport has over all the other sports is that heritage you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We it we have it. It's you go back and look at it. Well, you do it. You post it. It's the coolest stuff ever. Your posts are those old photographs. I mean, that's influence to me. Well, all right. Since since you said that word, I've got a little bit of an opinion here, and I think you and I've had this conversation before. Be careful how I say this. T- to me, one of the worst things about social media is influencers. The, yeah. The platform is it has given people to have a negative influence on something, whether they recognize they're doing it or not. It, it's mm-hmm. happening, and I think you know if you if you want to talk about it, we can. But there's a lot of people out there who, you know, they've got a twenty four to seventy, and, and they're a, they're an influencer. They're a professional photographer. They're they're changing how people think through the grind and rainouts and all these phrases that just drive me insane. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, and talk about that if you want to. I know you've got a lot more. Well, I, I just I think I think there's a lot of people now that are in it for the post. If it weren't for the post, that you wouldn't you wouldn't even those none of those narratives would even exist if it weren't for the post. They wouldn't even exist. Yeah. Think about it. That's why they're there. That's right. It's, you know, no, it's, I think it's extremely detrimental. And then what, you know, what, what happens if we start nearing a tipping point? And then you go, uh oh, you're not going to be able to reverse it. It's, no, how, how do you combat that mindset? You know, let's, let's, let's talk about the make them pay rent, right? Yeah. The, the, the mindset that they owe us something because we we invested we we tried to better the habitat we tried to set the table Correct. you know we tried to, to to be stewards of the land therefore mm-hmm. the resource owes me that's kind of that's, insane and i don't know how you combat that oh i i i i i don't know that i don't i don't i don't know how to do that other than i try to take care of i would call it my own my family my friends and family they're all aware of like what I think about that. I, I don't allow, I don't allow talk like that. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Or it's just so, it's so counter, it's so counterintuitive to what, what it right. means to, to create some longevity to the, to right. the resource, which in turn brings longevity to the sport because you know, the, you're providing a basic need for waterfowl, food, shelter, Mm-hmm. They're not providing us a basic need. We're, you know, we don't eat them to survive. Um, no. So, so it's not like it, we're not we're not on equal equal levels here. Um, and so to 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 
to throw that phrase because I it, that one drives me crazy too. Uh, that make them pay rent that or the rents due. You know, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll see a preseason yeah. photo, of a big cloud mm-hmm. of ducks, and they're using one of their properties, and and you see them say something, well, the rents due tomorrow. Uh, you yeah. know, when the season oh. opens or something like that, and and I just I, I I have a really hard time getting on board with that that line of thinking because that's that is very short narrow correct uh way to think about things and correct and uh well you know and, and the truth the truth is, truth is we shouldn't be doing it for this for for the longevity sport we shouldn't be worried about what we're doing for them before the season and during the season we've got a problem here in arkansas what we're doing for them after the season um you know we, we we're 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 eliminating habitat rapidly as soon as January 31st goes by. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just, that is maybe more important to those ducks than the preseason habitat. You mean the, if you want to survive and and go back and be strong and, and make, make more babies and all that other good stuff, that postseason habitat is almost as important as the preseason. You guys are down there with you guys know these guys. I'm going to mention their names because I think, I think people that love waterfall and love ducks and should really like research these guys. You know, Mickey Heitmeyer and Joey Pagan and oh yeah, Daniel. I'll see Joey guys, tomorrow. You know, asking yeah yeah asking. I mean, you'll see those guys tomorrow. Yep. I heard that. That's I wish I was with. I just gosh, I love that. But man, I was listening to. Well, you guys know my buddy Watt, Jeff Watt. You yeah. know Jeff. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he's he's way deep into this, you know, Osage Basin wetland, these symposiums that we've been working on and put on a number of them. And Mickey and Jody have been up and they've and Ryan and done a bunch of, uh, you know, speaking and lectures, you know, during those. And I'm telling you, man, Mickey, he laid one on me like last summer. And I was like, oh, man, is that good to hear that? And he was talking about the life cycle of a hen mallard and her, well, she dictates the whole deal, right? She does. Susie's Susie's it. Susie's the big, she's the big dog. And through her life cycle, the food the food that she needs and how her diet changes to get ready for eggs and travel in the spring. And then the amount of time that, or times that that hen mallard gets, I guess you'd say pressured or harassed, right? So like even like four wheelers, ATVs, UTVs, boats with mud motors, whatever, that are, are constantly moving ducks around, even if you're not hunting them. But your Mickey was talking about the stress that a hen mallard goes through. And it was like really interesting. So that totally ties into what you're talking about on January 31st when all these big places, they start to pull the water off them, right? Where's the hen going? Yeah, it's that's it was it was great stuff ah, for the listeners out there. You guys should check out Mickey Heitmeyer and Jody Pagan and Ryan Asker and their work and Dr. Osborne. Um, and in in particular, when they're talking about like wintering 
habitat like you just brought brought up i mean it's it's critical critical i'm glad you mentioned mickey since we started today recording this i've been trying to figure out he's got a stat i remember uh we did a deal down in lafayette louisiana one time he spoke at with us can you either one of you remember he's got a stat about how much more susceptible a hen mallard is in a dry field with a spinner versus without i want to say it's like 33 times more susceptible to getting shot over yeah. a spinner. Oh. I mean, it's staggering the number. Um, Mickey, that's Mickey? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he wants him gone. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's got, man, he's got a, a, some really good data oh, yeah. to back up his point. Oh, um, he was, he was like really, really good to listen to. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, love love those guys and that work that Dunklin's doing down there at Five Oaks and it's that that's what we need. That's needed. Yeah, I, th- I think you know through a lot of the conversations we have here on our show, that's that's the main point. You know, is that right. we we need to be asking these questions. We need to try to find these answers because any of us that ha- you know are in the sport and have any history in the sport can tell that something is off. It's not what it was in 99 or 2000 or even in 2013. It's, and I get it, it, you know, management is an ever changing cycle, you know, moving goalpost, but the, the, the culture that we talk about, the, the, some of the people we were just talking about with social media, I don't think they see that. They just see the kill, the hunt. That's it. So going back to that, Make them pay rent and rainouts and piles make smile. That whole mentality, right? It's mm. the it's the antithesis to having conversations about habitat and conservation. It's the opposite. Look look at look at social media. Who's talking about habitat and conservation? Hardly anybody. Right. Well, then that's what we need. That's what we need. We can't have too much high quality habitat. No. It's not possible. No, quite honestly, with he, I, I can bring this up around my area where I have a farm, a little farm in Minnesota, uh, southwest of the metropolitan area, about an hour or so, and it's it's duck country there, little you know marginal duck country now, but it is typically it was, and sometimes it's not that we don't have. Um, the ground, we just, the habitat's not, how do I, how do you say that? The ground that we have isn't, isn't producing enough because it's not the right, the ground's not managed for wildlife. There's, I think we should do more with what we have and not always focused on acquisition. Uh, don't get me don't get me wrong i'm not saying we shouldn't be doing land acquisition because we we should do that too but what about the ground that we have is it as productive as it should be that's what i'm that's i can say around the area that my farm's at it's not it's not producing nearly the amount of ducks that it should be producing not even close not close but- and that's and that's kind of a, a concern to me, and this may open up another another discussion um, or, or kind of circle back to some of the stuff we've been talking about. But you know, and, and this is not 
a criticism of the the waterfowl science community, but they, you know, a lot is hung on the on habitat. Basically, we'll be right back where we need to be as soon as we get a wet couple of springs on the prairie, prairie pothole region. And uh, what do we do? <laughs> what if we do that and we just we we don't worry about spinners, we don't worry about shooting two hens in a limit, we don't worry about you know pressure, we don't worry about lack of lack of habitat on the wintering ground and we ride it all on the prairie pothole region and we get a couple of good years of of rain and those populations don't bounce back then what do we do then what do you do right so if if you if you look i bet if you look if you go back far enough like into the 50s during the soil bank era right and and, and my dad and, and his brother, Roy, Uncle Roy, they started hunting Saskatchewan in 54. And their stories about what it was like in the mid-50s compared to when they were older and we were hunting, I had them to like on their last duck hunt and they were, they were pretty old then, uh, maybe in the 80s, maybe in the 80s or early 90s. And I mean, they would tell me like, I mean, Saskatchewan was nowhere near like it, it was in 54, 55 duck hunting, not even close. Right. So what I'm saying is it depends on what your benchmark is too. Right. My benchmark for what a lot of ducks and what duck country looks like is a lot different than the benchmark from somebody that's in their mid thirties. No. Yeah. Way, way different. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think you you got to look at, and you know, this is to your, to your point, like all these other things. So what if the water comes back, but you're still draining? Well, where does it go? Yeah. It, you know, and that doesn't make better water. It just takes some areas that turn into a larger watershed and turns them into giant open bowls instead of, little tiny marshes like they used to be, you know, that's, yeah, that's, well, let's, we're talking habitat here. So let's kind of, let's apply this to another management. Let's talk kind of fisheries management, right? So we, we look at the nesting ground as a certain, has a certain carrying capacity. Okay. So yep. if there's this many ponds, we're going to have this many ducks, right? And, and, you know, in fisheries management, you've got carrying capacity, but your carrying capacity is dictated by, you know, fecundity, habitat structure like all these things play into your carrying capacity in a in a fishery and we kind of talked about this too before the show you you were talking about uh sunfish in, in a certain pond i want you to tell a story in a second but you can overfish a fishery and the carrying capacity doesn't matter if you right. overfish it just right. because it can do it doesn't mean it will correct and i mean i think that's kind of maybe I'm not saying that's what's happening, but it, it could be some of the things. It's some of the things that concern me, I guess, when we look at limits, uh, hen harvest, you know, all these things that, that maybe there's some questions about where how we collect our data and how this data is, is getting put in. It concerns me a little bit that we are, you know, lockstep on on the carrying capacity of something. But if if we don't really know the harvest or if we don't really know some of these other things, then how do we really know that carrying capacity? 
Yeah, I yeah, I don't know that. Yep. Are you saying let, let's kind of go back to um, I know I keep talking about Canada, but you have you have more perspective on Canada than than we do, and 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 obviously probably a majority of our audience also sees it from afar. Uh, are there uh, are there exponentially more outfitters now than there were say five years ago, ten years ago? And 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 is that if it is, if there are, is most of that Americans that have that have come up there to guide? I think so. I'd say that. I I can't necessarily speak for like five years ago, but I'll go back. Go back 20 years. Yeah, oh yeah, there's way more. Not even, it's way more. I mean, even even like in like getting permission. I mean, I, I'll bet I went 20 years and never got turned down by a farmer. What happens all the time now? Because it's already it's already leased out to somebody. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. I mean, there you have you have some outfitters, you know, that have five, six, seven spotters and they're going around, and every duck or goose that hits a dry field, they go in and they tie it up and get permission whether they're going to hunt it or not. I mean, it's, yeah, it's problematic for DIY guys for sure. We, we, we talk about some of that here. I think eventually that will be the, the direction. It's not quite the same, but it's similar. I think that's the direction speckle hunting will will go here and I, I don't think the DIYer where and unless they're on their own ground will ever have a chance to right to do that it's, yeah no it's DIYing waterfall anywhere south of the Dakotas now is pretty tough pretty tough but yeah it's so going way circling way back to the beginning of this I mean you know you asked me about like changes you know and it's it's not the same it's not even close to the same as it used to be on the canadian prairies not even close neither are the, neither are the dakotas they're they're a lot the same way no yeah and i guess that's why south dakota do you, now let me ask you this okay so mm-hmm. you have kansas and i've talked to i have some i have some buddies in kansas some are resident some are non-resident uh that are that are outfitters there yeah, um, I, I don't have any connections in South Dakota, but uh, do you see, you know, because you go to you go to a lot more places than than the two of us, um, the, you know, different flyways, different countries, all that uh, east, west, uh, all that stuff. So do you think these states that are that are trying to regulate, you know, the influx of of non-resident, do you think it's truly a a big rise in non-resident hunters or is it more related to there's pressure put on their conservation agency the equivalent to our arkansas game and fish commission is it the is it the residents that are they're trying to protect what they have and and cut that off way before it's truly uh, impacted by non-residents okay so do I think it's impacted by non-residents and outfitting and rogue outfitting in particular in a lot of areas? I do, because if you take like locals, local sportsmen, and this, this goes for anywhere. It could be your area in Arkansas. It could be 
people in Saskatchewan. It could be pe the people you're talking about in South Dakota. So when access for them, locals, starts to become a problem because land is tied up or bought and paid for, then you're going to have a problem. And that's that's what you're going to have. And and they're, the government's going to regulate it. That's the problem. So yeah, if again it and for some reason we don't have the ability to police ourselves. It's you know the commercialism of the game has also changed this drastically. I mean it's it's big business for some. Oh and, sure, and and when we you know when things, especially resources are bought and paid for and little guys, especially the locals start getting squeezed out. I mean, boy, that's, that's going to be a tough subject in South Dakota. That's, that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a yeah. heated one. Yeah. Cause we, you know, we don't have the, this, the D the DIY, which is the way I understand Cause I've heard you use this term a lot in our conversations. Um, uh, you know, that's somebody going up there, say going to Canada, not hiring an outfit or not having necessarily a, a, a place to go. Maybe they have a place to stay, but not a place to go. And they're going to do their own scouting. They're going to go knock on their own doors and yep. they're going to get permission to hunt and, and do their thing, uh, you know, freelance. Uh, you know, yep. We have the, we kind of have, we've kind of done the opposite. To me, we've kind of done the opposite here in Arkansas. We have uh, taken, the public hunting opportunities and and reduce those significantly so it has pushed the non-residents into the private sector so to speak mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense so now leases are more competitive now you know when a when a good piece of property comes up for sale it is extremely more competitive if it right. makes it even to you know to a listing uh, most of them are, right. are sold beforehand but um it's it's done kind of some of the inverse of that. It's it's put pressure on the private sector um, because of reducing that that opportunity for the non-residents on the public public ground, and right. uh, it's gotten expensive. Man, I mean it's crazy, and it a lot of it is not very good property. Um, but somebody will still lease it, and somebody will still buy it, and somebody will still float a decoy in it. Right. Uh, for, for well, what are, you know, for what their yeah, reasons are. Right. As as demand increases and supply shrinks, it's it it that's that's a microcosm. That thing that you're just talking about right there, all over, right there. It's with with lessening habitat, shrinking habitat. How can it not go that way? Yeah. Right. Right. It's, I mean, it can't not. You know. Well, I think all of these <clears throat> lend themselves to the point that. You know, we're, yeah, we're seeing a decrease in license sales, but pressure is up and it's it's traveling. It would have to be. Otherwise, these Pressure's states 100%. Yeah. Pressure yeah, is up. They, they wouldn't feel like they have to limit out-of-state hunters unless they were coming there in a big enough number to need it. Um, That's, and I, again, I come back to the word and it's, it's pressure. It just, it is. That's what it is. Well, yeah, and it's it's immense here. Um, you know, every like uh, I was just saying, every little pocket of water is going to have a decoy on it, whether it's any good or not. Uh, 
because it's a thing to do. And I think it's great. Uh, the, the sport, contrary to people's belief, the sport actually needs more hunters uh, mm. because that's where conservation dollars come from. If, 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 you know, you don't understand where, how all that works with the taxes on shotguns and shotgun shells and, and all right. that, that go back to conservation, the less people in the game mean more hunters are going to have to front their own money um, directly to conservation organizations or, or the right. resources going to struggle. But That's the, right. the thought that, that, um, you know, that, that pressure is just based on, no, it's, it's not, it's not just based on, we have a hundred thousand duck hunters in Arkansas every winter. It's some of the things we talked about earlier that, that we do personally. And, and it gets back to that control, the controllable uh, thing um to 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 manage pressure on things we we can have a say so in um because i don't i don't think we want to see a steep decline in hunters and go oh man now the opportunity is going to be so much better because there's there's a price to pay for that um right that uh i don't think uh there's there's definitely a contingency that doesn't understand that and only are, are concerned about but about what their their decoy spread is going to going to do for them but um that's a that's a thing you know it's uh, it's only it gets back to the the whole government regulation thing it's just because you can doesn't mean we should uh, there you go there and, you go and, and that's what we struggle with uh as a duck hunting community is that 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 yep. self-discipline or that that ability to police ourselves uh and i, I have the same fear that that we're going to get regulated and in the days that taking the days away will that'll run people out of the sport like 100 percent, it will you just yeah. you just yeah. said we need more right yep that's what i'm saying that's what i meant back when i said it's the op it does the opposite regulating days is going to do the opposite make if if you have to do something and i don't know you hear game managers say it all the time like limits or cutting cutting the limit it doesn't do anything i just like at some point okay so i was just looking it up on my phone to be so i'm accurate when i say this in 1970 we had 2.03 million duck hunters in 1970 right so we're half that now and you'd go well yeah some of the younger folks might say well yeah but that's 1970 that's a long time ago no it's not that's yeah. my life that, yeah. I'm 63. That's my life, right? So one more of me, and are you telling me there's going to be 500,000 of us? I'm it, this this liberal limits seasons. Um, the way it's going, I I just can't see how it's sustainable. I can't. I'm not. But quite honestly, I'm not buying it. Not buying it at all. Well, this, yeah, there's a lot of people, a lot of people in that camp for sure. That, that you know, how do you do this 27 seasons in a row, uh, right? And seeing a long-term average take a dip like it is, right? And then, but and then you go, well, it's been dry in the prairie. Well, that's true, it has been, but not historically dry. Not yeah, anywhere yeah. near like that drought of the 80s. Not even close, right? We even looked at the numbers of uh, if you plugged in the the May pond counts and the in the bee pop in those late eighties, early nineties, thirty day three duck seasons, 
Oh. If you plug them into AHM now, they would have told you to hunt 60 days and six ducks. Right. One, there were two seasons that would have been right. uh, moderate, 45 days, four ducks. Right. Do, you re- do you remember, you guys a little bit younger, but do you guys remember um, when Jimmy Robinson used to do the duck forecast in sports field? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay he came so, to Arkansas a lot. 100%. So, frequent, so, frequent visitor to Arkansas. Yeah. So in his preseason travels in his duck report, I want to say this was in 78-ish. And Jimmy Robinson wrote in his report in Saskatchewan at, at Old Wives Lake in Moss Bank, South Central Saskatchewan, hardcore, hard pan prairie, um, was the most ducks and geese that he saw in any body of water ever. That drought in the 80s wiped that lake out. It was 99 square miles. It was gone. It had cracks in the earth. You guys might remember the photograph on the cover of Ducks Unlimited. And it was like the the the, the title of the magazine was Drought. And it was a photograph of Old Wives Lake. And the cracks in the earth were feet wide. Hmm. Right? So that drought, I'm telling you, there was no water. None. You felt bad. You felt bad for ducks when you then. So, like, again, so, yeah, rains will come back, but... What comes back? They keep draining. Habitat's getting less, 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 but the harvest and the pressure continues. Again, I, I don't see how that's sustainable. I don't. I think that's the biggest factor is, you know, now that we're, we're farming, every time a body of water shrinks, we farm down to the edge. It gets smaller, we farm more. And, right. yeah, I mean, it, when, it, when yep. the water comes back, what's it coming back to? Yes, that's 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 it, right? That's what I think. That's what scares all of us because you can talk to any old timer, and even though they still love hunting ducks today, but they're going to tell you, well, it's not like it used to be, because well, mm-hmm. it's not, and and we're still doing it, right? So what's it going to be in another twenty years, thirty years, fifty? Because that, let's take 50 years. That goes from when I was a kid in the 70s, like 1970, to right now, what, 50, 53 years. So take 50 years. Oh, oh, it's way different. I don't, I don't know. I, I gotta, we, we have to help change narratives and try to educate whenever we get it, not preach. And I know it sounds preachy, but, and that sucks that it does sound preachy. But it's it's worth the fight, right? Sure, it's worth, sure. It's worth being vocal. Yeah, I mean, you have to have to be. You're right. Um, yeah, and, and I don't like to sound preachy at all, and I also don't like to sound, you know, the the sky is falling. But right. But let's, you know, because I mean, have plenty plenty of good duck hunts. Um, you know, enough, enough to keep me coming back for more. Um, right. And of course it, it would have to get pretty bad for me not to, but, Oh, uh, like, like really, really bad. But, but that's, um, but that's not a commentary on, entirely on 
you know, how many I've killed. Uh, and I, I think that's a, that's a crossroads we're at a little bit in the sport because those that are obsessed with that number and that image that they want to portray, they're the next group to come along and, and kind of push buttons like, like, like maybe we are in this conversation or, or, or really want to have a better understanding of things, um, how complex all of this is, um, versus you just seeing a stat on a, right. On a, uh, on an email or a, a social media post, um, you know, just what those numbers really mean and, and all that. So, and we've all transitioned, I, I, you know, we've all talked about it, you know, we, there's different stages of a duck hunter and, and I didn't always, I wasn't always consumed with, with conservation science and, and, right. um, but, but my era of being consumed with, you know, how many we, we shot and, and all that was well before, the the social media area well before it correct so you you try to couple those two things together do people do do they not transition going forward as they get older because they want to keep up this this image that they've created for themselves on social media so they they continue down that path and never graduate to the next phase of duck hunter because we had this same conversation with justin martin um how he, he's evolved and, 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 but all of this has taken place for us in a time period that is not dominated by social media. Right. I, re, yeah. I, I worry about that. And, yeah. uh, I, I wonder if that, this next generation behind us that's coming along that needs to transition to the, Hey, let's pay more attention to the resource. Let's, let's have a better understanding. Let's, mm-hmm. let's do some different things and at least have some awareness. Or am I going to just be, I'm, I'm a killer and my social media says so. Right. And then they look up and they're 50 and uh, still trying to portray that image. And all of a sudden they look up and there's not any ducks anymore. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Kind of what? scary. Oh, man. Justin and I used to have, well, it's a long time now, but we used to have great, great duck chats. What What's his take on this kind of stuff right now? What did Justin have to say? I should listen to that podcast. I don't know that we dove as far into social media with him as we're doing right now. Um, I, mean, I know he's obviously concerned about the direction we're going, uh, about the, this this desire to take, take, take. You know, I think he yeah. he is, I think his own words evolved like we have. You know, you understand that you've got to give more back than you take from it. Otherwise, there won't be anything to have. Um, right. There you go. But that's, I mean, all this is what concerns me about the kind of culture crisis that I think we have with our sport right now. To to that point, you know, we've all kind of grown and, and grown through those stages, but how does this generation grow when they are surrounded by and consumed by making them pay rent? Yeah. You know, well, what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's projected on in media and it's loud and and it, and there's a a whole culture that love that. Quite honestly, it's the reason they're doing it. They yeah. do it for the post. I they I know they do. Oh yeah, it for sure. And then you see, you know, you start to see some brands kind of get behind those people or even that mentality, and it just really scary. concerns you. Yeah, yep. scary. That's right. 
scary. That is scary. Yep. Yep. But then again, let's, it's, I, you know, it's still the greatest, it's still the greatest thing there is duck hunting and ducks, you know, it's, they just, they need, they, they can't stick up for themselves. So we have to stick up for them. Yeah. I think that the number of people that are willing to work so hard for it is a testament to how great our sport is. Yep. Exactly. Oh yeah. There's people that dedicate their lives to them. Lots Mm -hmm. of people, you know? Yep. hundred percent. So how about, well, how about on a, like a happier note, what do you guys got going on this fall? What are you looking forward to? (laughs) Hopefully you coming down again. Oh, I'll be down for sure. Oh, we need, we need to start. We need to start working on that. If we want to, yep. we want to go yep. to some of the all-star places we've been before. We need to need to start. Tell me, start looking at that. But uh, let's 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 dodge the full moon. Yeah, Dan- uh, January is wide open for me. January is so okay. Well, earlier in January, the better. Um, okay. Despite what some people think <laughs> and advocate and. Can we, can we go January 32nd? Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, looking forward to that. And maybe, I don't know if you've got any time, uh, maybe early spec season, Lee, if you can swing out and get down here. Uh, might do a live episode or something if y'all can get this way. Well, it'll be fun. Yeah, that'd be Just, cool. Yeah, holler at, holler at me. Like, I, I'm I'm pretty freewheeling this year. So I'm yeah. doing I'm doing good this year. We'll definitely get something on the schedule. Yeah. yeah. We're uh, yep. we're right in the middle of rice harvest, a little bit later than I wanted to be, uh, making some plans to start some water today, trying to make a little spot for some blue wing. I don't know that we'll get to shoot any before it's all said and done, but at least uh, give them a place to stop and get a drink before they hit the road. Right. But, man, we'll uh, let's see. We should, uh, if we had water, we would be seeing white fronts in the next three to four days if the last two years are any indicator. Um, so, We'll turn some pumps on today, so maybe by Monday I'll be able to show you guys a picture of some on the ground down here. Um, so it's about to uh, it's about to get pretty exciting around here, or at least start to look like duck season. Right. Gosh, that's fun, isn't it? It is. I think that's a that's that's the coolest thing to me oh. is turning the water on and seeing the birds show up that quickly, knowing that. They're just they're they're waiting on it. They need it, and then that you're providing that for them. Oh yeah, uh, that's the biggest reward for me. Yeah, look, I love to hunt and kill. I mean, come on, that's why we're yeah. all duck hunters. I'm like, I'm that's not right. back away from that. But but yeah, seeing seeing the impact you can have, uh, right. especially long term. We're we're starting our 70th year here, Lee, uh, in the same spot. So that's pretty cool. I'm excited about that. Um, just cool to kind of carry on that impact and, and keep that going. Yep. Very cool. How's your reforestation going? It's good. Uh, man, it's it's crazy. We were brushing some blinds this week. It's absolutely wild to see how quickly you can go from production ag to, you know, early successional trees. I mean, in just a decade, we're talking from mm-hmm. farming to, it's not timber. I mean, it's not old growth, big giant hardwoods, but Man, it's changed a lot in a decade, and it's really, really good habitat. Um, yeah, just it, you can do it quick. You can really have a big impact in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Killer. 
Love it. You guys put some dates together and shoot them my way. I'd love to come down. Love to. Yeah, we'll make it happen. We'll do it for sure. Uh, yeah, we, we missed you down here last year and uh, love to have you back. And, and we need to, yeah, we need to, we need to get on that little 11 acre uh, rice field that we watched those ducks pour into that day. That, 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 yeah, that I don't think a- I, I, I have dreams. I wake up at night thinking about that. <laughs> Yeah, that was a productive, productive spot last year. And it's in the, in the field looks, you know, as far as food wise, it's going to be, it's going to be a, it's going to be a good one. Oh yeah. That was fun watching them. Oh gosh. Yeah. Super cool. Well, you guys, thanks for having me on. Yeah. We, we appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. We'll have to get you on uh, again. I'm sure this won't be the last time we jump on here and talk ducks. Well, maybe after. Maybe because it's preseason, sort of, you know, most places right now. Maybe we can do one after or at the end when I'm maybe when I'm down there in January or something. I'll yeah, give you that'd be great report because I'm going to be around. You know, I'll be up in Manitoba and Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Dakotas, Missouri, Montana. Oh, be lots to talk about. Well, I always appreciate your your unbiased. Uh, take on on what's going on elsewhere you know depends on who you talk to there, there's typically in most cases there's some bias to it they you know they, they're trying to represent where they hunt and what they do and or you know what they're doing if they're an outfitter and things like that so i, I appreciate your your candid takes on uh what's going on outside of what we see here you know within our our zone uh which is which is typically you know, pretty narrowly focused and don't right. uh, don't take in everything that's going on elsewhere because these ducks obviously don't live here 12 months out of the year. No, they don't. No, they sure don't. Yeah, that, that may be the biggest thing, biggest problem I have with banning, you know, out-of-state hunters is that this resource belongs to all of us. Uh, it's not a private resource, uh, regardless of what side of the state line they land on. But anyway, I, I'll, yeah. I'll stop talking about that. So. well lee thanks uh thanks again for coming on with us thanks to all of our listeners for staying tuned for all this uh find us on social media at the standard sportsman online at the standard sportsman.com and anywhere you get your podcasts the standard sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors sitka gear turning clothing into gear no name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than gore-tex and over the last 50 years gore-tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sika Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds 
let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. 